This week's episode of the Art Tactic Podcast is brought to you by ArtTactic.com, where you can find our brand new artist market report on Dana Schutz. Her auction market reached a new peak in 2019, with total sales for the year just under $7.3 million. We take a look at her background, her auction market, her curatorial attention, as well as how our insiders are feeling about her market moving forward. You can get that report now online at arttactic.com. Thanks for listening to the Art Tactic Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Green. We hope you had a relaxing holiday season and a happy New Year's. We're looking forward to an exciting 2020 on the podcast with you. We have a lot of great guests coming up. And our first one on this week's episode is Deirdre Funchen. She's a freelance journalist based in Miami. She wrote a fantastic article in the Washington Post magazine about the outsider artist Purvis Young, his career, and the conflict surrounding his estate. Outsider art is becoming increasingly popular over the last few years. Within the art world and the art market, there are now art fairs and art auctions dedicated to the genre, and Purvis is really the leader of that movement. I was at the Outsider Art Fair last week in New York, and there were Purvis Young paintings in multiple booths. He was the most prominent artist there on view. So he's a really important artist in this movement, and there's a lot of complexity regarding his estate and the business relationships he had when he was living, and Deirdre really dug into those details and wrote a fantastic piece, so we wanted to have her on. She was kind enough to join us to talk about Purvis and his career and his estate. Deirdre, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. So before we dig into some of the complexities regarding Purvis's business relationships, as well as his estate, I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with Purvis, or at least they've heard the name Purvis Young, especially given the recent increased interest in outsider art. But tell us a little bit about Purvis's career and why he's considered an outsider artist. Sure, yeah. Purvis Young grew up in Miami, in a poor black section of Miami called Overtown. Um, as a teenager, he dropped out of school. He got arrested for breaking and entering. He did three years in prison. And apparently, at some point when he was in prison, he started drawing. Um, I guess he had an uncle who had been an artist. Um, and then when he got out of, when he got out, he he thought, you know, he felt called, I guess. He felt like it was um, the only thing he could really do. And he had odd jobs as um, working in a restaurant and doing some repairs on a property. But uh, he really thought of himself as an artist, first and foremost. And he had a healthy dose of confidence. Um, he would go to the library and flip through books about like Vincent van Gogh and some of the old masters. And I think he, he thought of himself on par with them. Um, there's some great stories about him painting under the highway overpass here, and, and he would put a beret on while he was painting, because that's what the, <laughs> the masters did. Um, and so I don't, I don't even know how well he read, but he would spend hours at the library um, flipping through books and um, 
kind of developed his own signature style and um but he at first operated sort of outside of the art establishment he just set up an easel by the side of the road guys in the neighborhood would like bring him broken boards or um you know discarded shelving or just any kind of scraps and he would paint on that he would use he would go to like hardware stores to get the paint that's discounted you know in the back of the store the colors that <laughs> that didn't quite match somebody's house and they didn't want he would he would use those for his paint um there's some stories about firemen being out painting the fire hydrants and they would bring him the leftover paint from their buckets um, and apparently he also thought of himself as an environmentalist. He was like, I'm glad I'm not cutting down any trees. I'm glad, you know, I'm happy to do it this way. That's what I want. So um, for all of those reasons, I guess you would, you know, he's been described as an outsider artist, although from what I understand of that term um, nowadays is sort of being debated. I guess some people see it as like condescending to call someone an outsider artist, but um for now, I guess there's not really a great alternative. You know, some people are saying, oh, they should just be called contemporary artists or modern artists um, or post-war artists. But but I think it does um, represent someone who who wasn't really tuned into the, the fine art, um, you know, sort of the, the commercial aspect of the fine art world. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and I think partly why he's considered an outsider is he didn't have that traditional path of being an artist, going to school to be an artist, going to get a master's, living in New York, being represented by a gallery in New York. So I think that's part of it as well. And you do touch in the article on different successful businessmen and collectors who were engaged in communicating with Purvis about acquiring his art. Would you say there was a turning point in his career career when he really became well-regarded and recognized? Yeah. So um, apparently he initially, um, he would just paint for himself. And then he went to the library and he saw that in Chicago, there was a famous uh, mural called the Wall of Respect, where artists had painted and celebrated black history. And he said, huh that's what I should do. You know, I shouldn't just keep my paintings in the back room. I should paint them up where, you know, um, nail them up where everyone can see them. And he nailed them up in this alleyway that was known as, it was called Good Bread Alley. And uh, the highway ended right there. And so um, tourists would come off the highway and, and see him with all these paintings nailed up. And people would be curious. They would get out of their cars. They might buy paintings for 10 bucks, 20 bucks, 100 bucks. Um, and even some locals were intrigued. And Miami is actually, you know, a pretty young city. Um, culturally, I think at the time he was painting, I guess around the 1960s, um, there were uh, some efforts to get a cultural scene going in Miami. There was a guy, I think his name is Bernard Davis, who was an early collector who would do, he was trying to get a, a museum going. I think he did. Um, and I think he would have these salons in his house and he would invite, invite some of the leading Miami artists. And so he invited Purvis and, and he Purvis's work, um, which I think gave Purvis some legitimacy. And you had, um, he had a friend named CeeLo Crespo, who was actually a Cuban Santeria priest. 
and he sort of stepped in going, Paris, you're letting all these people take advantage of you. You know, you should charge higher rates. You don't want these tourists to come and just be filling up their cars for a hundred bucks. You know, you deserve better than that. You're a genius. <laughs> and uh-huh. so um, that was his first like manager. Um, and then eventually by the eighties, um, a more formal gallerist named Joy Moose uh, signed him to a contract, an exclusive contract. Um, and I spoke with her. She said that she initially uh, split profits with him in like a 50-50 arrangement, which she said was pretty standard at the time. Um, and I think Purvis sort of vacillated between kind of tiptoeing into this more established art world and he realized, hey, there's some real money here. And and he, I think to some degree he craved that legitimacy, you know, and then I think he also um, sometimes like also retreated to his community and his friends, some of the black community in Overtown and, and some of the lawyers and and friends there who kind of felt like they were sticking up for him. And I, th- I think everybody who worked with Purvis and encountered him had good intentions and everyone who met him was like, oh, you know, you're getting ripped off. You can do better with me. Come with me. <laughs> and so I think like a lot of the, um, a lot of the complications that he ran into over the course of his life and career are just a reflection of that, you know, this kind of push pull between the different, um, different people who were, I think, good intentioned and trying to help him make money and make a name for himself. But there was definitely like a, a push pull. Eventually, uh, William Lewis Dreyfus, did I say that right? <laughs> um, he, is a bill was a billionaire and collector in New York and um Purvis's friend Leon Roll told me that he had come to Miami and wanted to buy a lot of work from Purvis uh but Purvis was still involved in this exclusive contract with Joy Moose so um he wanted to get out of that and there was a lawsuit uh to get out of that contract um and then Purvis went on to work with like a number of other gallerists. There's a guy named Larry Clemens who um, said that he had heard of Purvis and, you know, actually went down into Overtown to find him under an overpass and um, struck a deal with him and eventually set up some space in Fort Lauderdale, which he called the Purvis Young Museum. And he bought a lot of Purvis's artwork and sold it there. And um, there were some other gallerists that Purvis was known to deal with. Uh, there's a guy named Scott Foreman um, who works in New York and I think in Mexico. Uh, there's another guy named Daniel Aubrey in New York that all worked with him at ver- various times. Um, and in Miami, there was a there was some debate o- over whether people were exploiting him or whether these were symbiotic relationships because Purvis was very prolific. And so sometimes they would come along and say, oh, you know, Purvis might not have sold anything in a while and he might come along and say hey I need to pay my rent um want to take some paintings off my hands and these gallerists would say okay um you know you need a thousand bucks for rent okay give me 20 paintings or whatever and sometimes those gallerists were able to flip those paintings for a lot of money so you know there was there are some old news articles of you know um where people kind of discuss the pros and cons of that and I think you know, a lot of people in Miami felt 
protective of purpose. <laughs> um, but you could you could debate whether those kind of deals were were helping him or exploiting him. That's certainly something that people have talked about a lot. Yeah, and you do a great job going into detail in your article discussing the complexity around Purvis's estate. And maybe partly that's due to so many business relationships he had when he was living. But in Purvis's will, he left all of his paintings to a close friend of his and her children. But they haven't received a single painting yet to this point, several years later. So the situation is really complex. But if you can break it down for us briefly, that would be really helpful. Sure. Yeah. So Purvis's situation is um, probably a little bit more complex than most artists would be because uh, he was under a guardianship when he died. And so he had um, he had met a gallerist named Martin Siskind here in Miami. Um, they made some kind of agreement together and then um, their relationship soured and Purvis sought to sort of break up with him. Um, and Martin was like, what? What's going on with you? You know, what's gotten into you? I think you need a guardian because at this point, Purvis was in his 60s. He was in pretty poor health. Um, money would come and go. You know, sometimes he'd be flush and other times he'd be pretty poor. So Siskin went to the court and said that he needed a guardian. Now, whether he did that out of the goodness of his heart or whether he did that as retaliation for Purvis breaking up with him, that's uh, another matter of debate here. <laughs> but um, in any case, the judge appointed two guardians. And um, so when a guardian is appointed, these guardians can charge money to, they do things like um, take over his bank accounts, make sure that his rent is paid, make sure he has health insurance, things like that. Um, and so, but the guardians also charge um, an hourly fee. And so, and sometimes they need lawyers to step in and, and create documents. And so over time, the guardianship, a, a lot of bills were racked up in the guardianship um, up to about half a million dollars. And so then Purvis died in 2010 and the guardians went to the court and they said, okay, well, he owed us half a million dollars. He didn't really have any cash when he died. So can we take paintings as our pay? And, you know, we'll have them appraised and we'll only take as much paintings as each of us, the value commensurate with what we're owed. And so the judge said, sure, that sounds great. She even designated an appraiser in New York and um, she thought that they would, you know, go ahead and, and take care of that. However, one of the guardians um, was also named the personal representative of Purvis's estate. So he was the guy sort of in charge of making all, making sure that all the finer, final bills were paid and then giving anything that was left over to Purvis's heirs. Now Purvis had named like a, his best friend. He called her his common law girlfriend, um, but she says they were best friends and her children, he had left his estate to them. Well, when he died, he only had, he left about 1800 paintings. So the guardian who was supposed to pay all the final bills and then give anything left over to the heirs, he did not comply with the judge's order at first. 
um, apparently it came out in testimony later. Um, he went to go get the work appraised and found out it could cost tens of thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars for a formal appraisal. Uh, if they had to have an appraiser like inspect each piece and authenticate it and so on. So he said, well, the estate has no cash. Um, and so he just kind of held on to it and hoped that uh, a buyer would come along. And apparently over the years, there were a few inquiries. Um, there were at least five inquiries and I guess um, informal offers ranging from $700,000 to, I think it was $3.4 million, um, where potential buyers had come along and said, hey, you know, I'll buy the collection for this much. But all of these offers were, um, were made with, like, either they, either they were just talk and when push came to shove, they were never really formalized, or the proposed deal structure was like, hey, we'll give you $300,000 right now. And then as we sell off the work, we'll pay off the rest. And the lawyer slash guardian who was in charge didn't like those terms. And so he turned down some deals and um, eventually years went by and, um, and he never sold the collection. He was paying for a warehouse space and eventually, you know, some of these lawyers who had been owed money and now a decade has gone by, they haven't gotten paid. They kind of nudged things along and said, come on, let's let's do this. And the attorney guardian who was in charge went back to court and said, hey, um, I haven't been able to find a buyer. I've spent so much warehousing this work and um, we just need to get paid. Can we just divvy up the art? And the judge said, oh, okay. And she she wrote a fresh order. This time it did not require an appraisal. And she let them distribute the art. And because of some legal maneuvering uh, between the guardianship and the estate, the heirs, Purvis's friend slash girlfriend, uh, did not realize this was happening until the art was all gone and split up among these lawyers. And so the way she found out is that um, David Byrne, the former singer from the Talking Heads, wanted to put uh, one of Purvis's images on his album cover. And so he had, he had, his assistant had sent some emails around trying to find out who was in charge. The email made its way to Purvis's old friend and um, he went to the courthouse to see what was going on and discovered that the art had already been split up and distributed amongst these eight attorneys and guardians. Um, and I forgot to say, but the judge let them take not just the half a million dollars worth of art that they were owed, but she also said, she also agreed that because they would have to go and place it with a gallery to get cash and the gallery might take 50%, that they could actually take double the amount of art that they were owed. So they could take a million dollars worth of art, basically. Wow. So the family didn't find this out until, until, um, until about, well, I guess just sometime in 2018. And so they were like, what, what are you talking about? We thought you were going to sell this whole collection for many millions of dollars. And yeah, you would take your million dollars in fees, but we thought there would be another million for our family or 
couple million for a family. And so they were completely caught off guard. They hired lawyers to kind of go back and try to claw something back. Um, but because of a lot of quirks of the probate court, I guess you would say, um, they were unsuccessful and it's kind of, you know, tragic for them. Yeah, it's a really unfortunate situation. And interestingly, I attended the Outsider Art Fair last week in New York City, and I noticed there were several Purvis Young paintings, and they weren't just in one or two gallery booths. They were in several of them. And after having read your article and then going to the fair, I just thought, wow, it's really fascinating and kind of unfortunate that there are these paintings dispersed in so many different places and a large part of this seems to be due to the way in which the estate was divided and there's no entity or no body that's managing the estate and managing all these paintings and authenticating them and it's kind of the wild west in terms of acquiring these things and knowing if they're real and where they came from um so it's just a really tricky situation yes so um i guess i i'm not I'm not sure who would be an authenticator. You know, I mean, I know that Christie's has sold a good amount of his work. Um, I don't know if someone at Christie's could, could do something like that. Um, Christie's had also, I had actually called Christie's. They, they, there were some other appraisers that they referred me to who were experts in outsider art who didn't call me back for my story, but um, I don't know if that's something they're able to do. Um, there is, you know, Larry Clemens was his longtime gallerist, probably, probably as I would imagine handled the biggest volume of his work. So I don't know if he would be able to do that. I'm not sure exactly what the, the process entails, but, um, you know, one of the purpose was very prolific and you can see on sites like eBay or, Live auctioneers, you know, you can see works for, I, I think I saw one for as little as $25. That was pretty, I guess you might say primitive. Um, and then I've seen some for, I think the highest number I saw was $43,000 for a painting and then uh, $60,000 for a mural. Um, so there's a huge range. And I did talk to James Fuentes, who's a gallerist in New York, and, and he said, you know, uh, what a lot of people told me actually is that it's uh, the fact that you can get Purvis's works for for a low price or a high price, like it actually makes him, um, you know, they think that's an asset because it's just, it's a really nice way, like a, a beginning collector can get in at some of the, the lower price works and uh, more experienced collectors can issue kind of can see and understand the complexity um, of some of the more ambitious works will pay a higher premium for, for those more ambitious works. And, and that, you know, a, a trained eye knows the difference and can tell the range of work. Deirdre, thanks so much again for coming onto the podcast. We appreciate you chatting with us about Purvis and his business relationships during his life, as well as the complexities surrounding his estate. The article you wrote in the Washington Post magazine was really fascinating, and I recommend our listeners check it out if they haven't already. They can also find it online on the Washington Post website, and we'll continue to see how things play out with Purvis's estate and his market as he continues to be a leader in the outsider art movement. 
Thanks so much again, Deirdre. Oh, thank you so much for having me.